everyone, and welcome back to Mince's Health Law Diagnosed, a podcast dedicated to health law, health policy, and social issues in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Neely Yolen, and today we're going to be discussing hot topics in FDA regulation and enforcement. Before I introduce today's expert panelists, I want to thank our listeners for writing in with some excellent comments and suggestions. I hope you'll continue to let us know your thoughts by emailing us at healthlawdiagnosed at mints.com. Joining me today from Washington, D.C. is my partner, Joanne Hawana. Joanne leads the FDA practice group at Mints and counsels a wide variety of clients on regulatory and distribution-related considerations to bringing new FDA-regulated products to market. Welcome, Joanne. Thanks for having me, Neely. You're welcome. So happy to have you. Also joining us today is my colleague and fellow New Yorker, Benjamin Zigarelli. Ben provides FDA regulatory counseling to clients in the pharmaceutical, medical device, and biotech industries and is a key part of the Mintz Clinical Research Practice Group. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Neely. Happy to be here. Happy to have you, Ben. All right, before we get started, I just want to add that Joanne and Ben have co-authored two books together in the past few years one on the promotion of FDA-regulated medical products, and one on due diligence in the life sciences industry. So it's fair to say they have a broad view of the various challenges of doing business in these industries, and they certainly have their pulse on many of the FDA's initiatives and actions. All right, guys, let's dive in. It's a little bit hard for me to say which federal agency had the most challenging 2020, but I doubt anyone would argue against the FDA taking the top spot. The agency has played a central role in the nation's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and it didn't take long before it was forced to assign some manpower to prevent fraudulent products from reaching the market. Joanne, can you describe for our listeners the kind of unscrupulous conduct you've heard about and what the FDA is doing to protect the public from these scams? Absolutely, Neely. Uh, Before we jump in, I think it would be helpful to first set the stage and note that FDA has an extremely broad jurisdictional reach that is derived from the legal definitions of drug, device, and food within our very favorite statute, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which we'll both refer to as the act for the rest of our discussion today. Any FDA-regulated product is unlawful if it is in commercial distribution and is either adulterated or misbranded, which again have very specific legal meanings, but generally it means the products cannot be contaminated or falsely labeled. In addition, if a product requires prior FDA approval to be sold, what we call pre-market approval or clearance or licensure, depending on the specific product type, and it hasn't gone through that process, then the product is also in violation of the act and therefore subject to seizures, injunctions, and the like. Unfortunately, as everyone knows, when there is a public health emergency or people are suffering, there are inevitably going to be fraudsters who seek to take advantage of the situation for their own financial benefit. And the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly spawned a wide variety of different and unique, unique kinds of fraud, but FDA regulated medical products are a big part of that, of course. So back in March of 2020, FDA set up what it calls Operation Quack Hack, which has identified hundreds of fraudulent drugs, testing kits, and personal protective equipment sold online with unproven claims. Operation Quack Hack essentially leverages 
existing agency expertise and advanced analytics to protect consumers from those fraudulent products during the pandemic. They're receiving complaints from all over, including from the ports of entry uh, where customs officials uh, monitor shipments coming into the country and from other federal and state agency partners. And they review thousands of websites, social media posts and online marketplace listings. So their work has led to the issuance of warning letters, which I'll talk about in a minute, but less visible is the fact that they are sending hundreds of abuse complaints to domain name registrars, social media platforms, and internet marketplaces, who in most instances have voluntarily removed postings identified by FDA as being for fraudulent products, claiming to mitigate, prevent, treat, diagnose, or cure COVID-19. So as of the end of March of this year, March uh, FDA noted that it had identified more than 1,350 fraudulent and unproven medical products through Operation Quack Hack. As I mentioned, there also are warning letters, which are public. And since the beginning of the pandemic, the first letters were actually issued on March 6, 2020, well before uh, I think many of us had really realized we were in a pandemic situation. But in any event, since March of 2020, FDA has sent out more than 170 warning letters informing people that their products are in violation of the act and giving them a very short period of time to respond, often 24 hours. A large number of those letters have also been issued in conjunction with the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Consumer Protection and Division of Advertising Practices, which shares oversight for over-the-counter products with the FDA. And I mention that because not only are all of these products in violation of our act, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, but those companies and individuals marketing them with claims about preventing, treating, or curing COVID-19 are also blatantly violating the Federal Trade Commission Act and their fundamental rule that advertising for goods and services cannot be deceptive. When you have literally no scientific or medical proof for the claims you're making, that is a cut and dry case of consumer deception. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention is that because FDA is a sub-agency of the Department of Health and Human Services, it doesn't have independent prosecuting authority. So FDA instead has a law enforcement arm called the Office of Criminal Investigations. And that office gets involved when investigations of illegal activities are required, and it coordinates with the Department of Justice for criminal prosecutions. So we have seen a number of high profile instances of fraudulent FDA regulated COVID-19 products leading to full-blown prosecutions in the past year, um, or a little bit more than a year now. Most recently, on April 23rd, um, the Office of Criminal Investigations announced an indictment in Florida involving several members of a family who were selling a product called Miracle Mineral Solution, which was really nothing more than toxic industrial bleach as a cure for COVID-19, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, autism, and a whole slew of other serious medical conditions. So these are felonies, and in this case, the product was not only fraudulent, but it could kill people. So as you can imagine, the folks at FDA, FTC, and the Department of Justice deserve our thanks for doing the never-ending work of trying to keep the public safe from these kinds of shysters and unsafe products. Another great example would be the federal charges filed in February against three Baltimore area individuals who were allegedly selling fake COVID-19 vaccines. Yes, I read about that one. You sent me the press release. Thank you for sharing it with me. It's so crazy. And I also wonder, as an FDA outsider, how funny the type, the name Operation Quack Hack is, but maybe for FDA insiders, it's 
par for the course. I don't know. But um, I got a kick out of that one. Uh, anyway, this is a perfect segue to my next question, because I don't think we could talk about the FDA's role in the pandemic without a discussion about the emergency use authorizations for COVID-19 vaccines. When the term emergency use authorization comes up in casual discussions, and by casual discussions, I mean my own, and those with the people I see on a daily basis, I get the sense that some people are under the impression that the FDA took shortcuts to get the vaccines out into the marketplace. Ben, maybe you can tell us about the EUA process and what the FDA is doing to assure the public that it should trust and have confidence in receiving these vaccines. Sure, Neely. Uh, happy to discuss that. Um, so the emergency use authorization or uh, EUA process, as we'll call it here, um, is a statutory mechanism by which FDA, uh, acting with the authority of the Secretary of Health and Human Services, can accelerate the availability and use of medical countermeasures, including diagnostic tests and vaccines during public health emergencies, such as the current COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, in the recent past, uh, FDA has also used the EUA process to speed the distribution and use of medical countermeasures during outbreaks of the Ebola and Zika viruses. Um, in normal circumstances, the standard for authorizing a medical product uh, to be marketed in, in the U.S. is a reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness. Uh, but during an, an emergency, the FDA is a bit more flexible. Uh, Section 564 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act uh, gives the FDA the ability to authorize uh, the introduction into interstate commerce of unapproved medical products or unapproved uses of approved medical products as medical countermeasures when there is a public health emergency related to a chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear agent. Uh, use of this authority, however, requires a declaration issued by the HHS secretary that justifies the use, the emergency use uh, of a, a particular type of countermeasure. Uh, but I won't go into those uh, specific criteria required for such a decision here. Uh, medical countermeasures can be drugs, uh, such as uh, antivirals like remdesivir um, and monoclonal antibody products, uh, biological products such as convalescent plasma and vaccines, uh, and medical devices uh, such as uh, personal protective equipment uh, and in vitro diagnostic tests. Um, and I should add that all of the examples that I just gave, there, there are EUAs uh, that FDA has, has authorized uh, during the pandemic for, for each of those product types. Uh, there's no inherent limit on the number of EUAs that can be granted by FDA uh, under an HHS declaration, as long as each countermeasure meets the criteria for emergency use authorization, um, including that there are no adequate approved and available alternatives. Once submitted, FDA will evaluate an, an EUA request and determine whether the relevant statutory criteria are, are met, taking into account the totality of scientific evidence about the medical product uh, that is available to FDA. The issuance of an EUA is different from an FDA approval, licensure, or clearance. Uh, a diagnostic test or vaccine available under an EUA is not approved or cleared, um, and each EUA letter of authorization includes a long list of conditions that are not applicable or required for fully approved, licensed, or cleared medical products. When the public health emergency ends and the HHS declaration is revoked, uh, EUAs issued by FDA under that authority are no longer effective. 
FDA's Center for Devices and Radiological Health, uh, or CDRH, has already indicated that it is working on procedures and policies to support companies with COVID-19 diagnostic tests and other medical device EUAs who want to convert those emergency authorizations into regular marketing approvals or clearances. And so, so just far- then, I'm sorry, just so I understand, is it is it a parallel process? So the for example, the vaccines that have the EUA, they are now presumably working with FDA to get full approval? That's correct. Uh, they're, they're authorized currently to be on the market, but they still need to have full uh, agency approval in order to uh, continue to be used after the uh, public health emergency declaration is over. Got it. Thanks. So as I, and as I was just saying, there's, there's, uh, so far there's uh, one COVID-19 test that has achieved full non-emergency marketing authorization and other diagnostic tests for COVID-19 can build off of that initial full marketing authorization. Since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, FDA has authorized many diagnostic tests that detect the SARS-CoV-2 virus or uh, the antibodies our bodies produce in response to it. Uh, as of April 30th, FDA has authorized 369 uh, diagnostic tests uh, and sample collection devices under the EUA process. Uh, these include 270 molecular tests and sample collection devices, uh, 76 antibody and other immune response tests, and 23 antigen tests. Uh, there are 49 molecular test authorizations and one antibody test authorization that can be used with samples collected by individuals at home. Um, there is one molecular prescription at-home test, uh, two antigen prescription at-home tests, four over-the-counter at-home antigen tests, and two over-the-counter molecular tests. So as you can see in the testing category, both the industry and FDA have been quite busy uh, in the EUA area. Each of the COVID vaccines uh, released in the U.S. to date uh, were also authorized for distribution and use through the EUA process. Uh, even though the vaccines are on the market and being used on millions of people around the world, uh, FDA expects each manufacturer of a COVID-19 vaccine authorized under an EUA to continue conducting clinical tests uh, to obtain uh, additional safety and effectiveness information and pursue full approval. Um, in this case, licensure uh, through the uh, through a BLA or a biologics license application. Uh, Pfizer, uh, the Pfizer and BioNTech um, uh, vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are likely to secure full approval later this year uh, based on their estimates for making full BLA submissions. Uh, given the nature of the EUA as an emergency process, uh, it can seem as though FDA's use of, uh, of it for vaccines might lead to the authorization of unsafe vaccines. Uh, although the review process for an EUA at the agency level is shorter, the manufacturer must still provide a similar level of data as for a normal marketing application for a biological product. FDA released a guidance document uh, describing the EUA requirements for COVID-19 vaccine manufacturers. Uh, this was back in October of 2020, uh, which include data from preclinical studies uh, and phase one, two, and three clinical trials, as well as follow-up safety data from at least two months after the complete uh, vaccine dose has been administered. The guidance outlines even more safety and effectiveness data requirements that have to be submitted with the EUA application. In addition, 
Each COVID-19 vaccine authorized to date has been reviewed by the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, comprised of independent experts. Uh, FDA hopes uh, that being open and transparent about the EUA process uh, will help drive the public's confidence in each of the COVID-19 vaccines. I hope it will too, Ben. I do. I also, I would imagine that full licensure down the road might help with some of the vaccine hesitancy we've been hearing and reading about. Um, I also realize we could spend the rest of this episode discussing the EUA process, but I'm going to switch gears just a bit because, believe it or not, there are other pressing issues that the FDA is combating, one of which is the regulation of cannabis-derived compounds. Can you explain how cannabis-derived products, and in particular, dietary supplements containing cannabidiol or CBD, play into the current COVID-19 enforcement environment? And I'd also love it if you could talk more broadly about the FDA's approach to CBD and why it appears to be such a vexing issue for the federal government to address. Yeah, I'll take this one, Neely. Um, To again, just set the stage for everyone, I would first point out that cannabis is a, a botanical term that captures both the controlled substance that is marijuana and then the uncontrolled substance that is hemp. So there are many different kinds of cannabis plants, uh, which as a family contain hundreds of biologically active chemical compounds. And research on some of those compounds is just beginning and and expanding right now as well. But the most commonly known cannabis-derived compounds are Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, and cannabidiol, or CBD. Unlike THC, which most people know is psychoactive and is the primary cause of the high associated with marijuana usage, CBD is not intoxicating and it does not cause the user to feel high. This is because the two compounds affect different receptors in the brain. As part of the 2018 Farm Bill, Congress removed hemp from the Controlled Substances Act and therefore from DEA regulation. So CBD that is derived from hemp and that meets the definition set forth in the law now is no longer a controlled substance. The the new definition of hemp is essentially cannabis plants and any part or derivative of those plants that contain no more than 0.3% THC on a dry weight basis. So getting back to FDA's jurisdiction and the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, uh, in general, CBD and cannabis derived products are going to be FDA regulated because they're either drugs, foods, uh, or dietary supplements, as you mentioned, Neely, or in some cases, cosmetics. This goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning of our uh, discussion about the legal definitions of those categories of products being very specific and claims driven. And the fact that how a manufacturer or distributors positions their product to be used by consumers plays a really key role in determining how FDA will view that product based on those definitions and again, the claims being used to sell the product. So if the product claims to treat, mitigate, or prevent a disease, even if it's formulated as a traditional food or beverage product, for example, FDA can take action against it for being an unapproved and misbranded drug. So under the act, it's also unlawful to put CBD and other active ingredients into foods and dietary supplements. And the agency has really been struggling to regulate a burgeoning marketplace that has grown exponentially since the 2018 Farm Bill removed hemp from the Controlled Substances Act. 
However, hemp legalization under the Controlled Substances Act did not change the status of hemp-derived CBD as being considered a drug under our act, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And the Farm Bill included very explicit language clarifying that nothing in the Food and Drug Act was affected by that change to the Controlled Substances Act. So that's the tension that you're seeing um, play out in the marketplace nearly. So even before the COVID-19 pandemic, FDA was issuing warning letters to manufacturers and distributors of CBD containing products based on various violations of the act. FDA's letters to date have really been focused on companies who are selling unapproved CBD products that claim to prevent, diagnose, mitigate, treat, or cure various diseases. Although in some cases, there are also further violations of the act cited because CBD was added to food and some of the products were impermissibly marketed as dietary supplements. These days, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, some of these products are also being targeted for regulatory attention because they are making specific claims about preventing, mitigating, treating, or curing COVID-19. So you might see a claim that, you know, CBD will prevent your COVID-19 infection or uh, help you fight it. And, And certainly those are problematic drug claims. At the same time this is all going on, FDA is also very acutely aware of the public and congressional pressure it's under to make these kinds of non-controlled, non-psychoactive products less subject to federal regulation, such as by declaring CBD, quote, what we call generally recognized as safe, uh, as an ingredient that can be added to foods and beverages, and going through a rulemaking process to allow for the ingredients used in dietary supplements, notwithstanding the current statutory language that says drugs can't be added to dietary supplements. Congress is also considering legislation that would skip that rulemaking process altogether and declare CBD lawful to add to foods and dietary supplements through a specific statutory exemption. So to try to move things forward, again, following the 2018 Farm Bill, the agency held a public meeting in mid-2019 and also created a public docket for the submission of data and information about CBD Um, But since then, it has repeatedly noted that very little robust safety information about CBD has been provided by developers of these products. So the agency is somewhat hamstrung by the fact that it is a public health agency, and it does need scientific evidence to support its decision making and regulatory actions if it wants to comply with the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, which you know is really important, Neely. Um, Otherwise, FDA is likely going to be sued by stakeholders who don't have the same goals as some of those industry and congressional members who really want to get more CBD products to market. Uh, And so they're they're being very careful here, um, you know, to to not get sued and not take um, action that could be construed as arbitrary and capricious without necessary support. Mm -hmm. Another point to make is that FDA has been conducting a sampling program of CBD products in the marketplace. And so far, the results are not very good. In January of this year, agency leadership reported that the results to date, and I'll quote from their press release, indicate fewer than half of the tested products which presented label claims contain CBD at concentrations within 20% of their claimed amount, and some products contain the psychoactive intoxicating cannabinoid THC, end quote which means that essentially these commercial products are all adulterated and misbranded, even when you put aside the complex regulatory status status of CBD as an ingredient that we were just talking about. Um, So that's not something that benefits the industry as a whole or makes it likely for the agency 
to really want to take unnecessary risks when it comes to, you know, again, the normal process of making evidence-based policy decisions. So there's, again, a lot going on in this space, Neely. Um, earlier this year, FDA announced it's a multi-pronged research program to try to fill in all these data gaps in our general knowledge of CBD. Um, so there really are a lot of opportunities for interested stakeholders and other entities to get involved in developing this newly emerging regulatory regime. And um, I think there's certainly a lot to come in that CBD space, both enforcement-wise and you know, regulatory policy-wise. So interesting. Thank you. And so educational, and not just because I learned how to pronounce cannabidiol, um, <laughs> if I said it right, I was working on that. Uh, I have to imagine, you know, there was a time when CBD was all over the place. I was getting spam emails about CBD oil. You know, I'd walk outside to my GNC and there would be a sign about selling CBD. I remember it being marketed in coffee. If, if Does that sound familiar to you, that it was in people were trying to sell it in coffee shops? Oh, there was a coffee shop up the street from me that was that had a board outside that said, CBD coffee, stop in to get yours. <laughs> I, well, I it was guess, in right in my neighborhood. Right. Okay. I'm not crazy. So I, I guess the FDA took care of that or is trying to take care of that. Um, but it's def definitely dissipated over the last year. But then again, I haven't really left my house in the last year. So um, I want to turn our discussion now to digital health, which is another hot topic for the FDA since the pandemic has hastened the demand for digital health technologies, such as remote patient monitoring and artificial intelligence. What has the FDA done to expand the availability of digital health and to ensure that AI software, clinical decision support, and machine learning technology are safe and effective when they hit the market? Yeah, so I can take this one. Um... FDA has really put a lot of effort toward building out its approach uh, to and its capabilities in digital health, uh, both in terms of uh, regu the regulation of industry stakeholders um, and developing the agency's own uh, technological digital health infrastructure. Uh, digital health is really an exciting area, uh, and it has been for the past decade. Uh, technological innovation is moving forward at a rapid pace. Um, and healthcare is one of the focal industries for applying and using such advances. Uh, and throughout the past decade, uh, FDA has been forced uh, to take uh, the outmoded uh, device regulatory framework uh, originally developed uh, to work with traditional physical hardware devices, like things you can hold in your hand and, and use and see, um, and it has had to adapt those frameworks to uh, standalone software as a medical device, which is where the software itself, the, the application is is the medical device itself. So something sort of ephemeral, uh, which you can't touch or see, um, except on a on a computer platform. Which uh, so software by its nature is difficult to define and regulate under the same rules uh, as hardware devices. And the difficulty for the agency is multiplied uh, with the recent use of advanced artificial intelligence. Uh, and machine learning algorithms uh, in medical applications, such as diagnostic tests and clinical decision support. Uh, for instance, FDA's current approach to uh, art artificial intelligence and machine learning software is to require a so-called locked algorithm that can't learn or modify itself in any way once it is uh, submitted to the agency for marketing authorization. Uh, however, FDA's regulatory framework for software as a medical device is undergoing massive changes due to the advent of the Digital Health Center of Excellence, 
uh, in the Agency Center for uh, Devices and Radiological Health, uh, or CDRH. Uh, the Center for Excellence was formally announced uh, in 2020. The Center of Excellence is a gathering and alignment uh, of resources across all parts of FDA to focus the agency's approach uh, towards the regulation and, and development of digital health technologies. It will be responsible for developing central FDA policies and guidance documents relating to digital health products, uh, aligning digital health strategies across the agency, advising and supporting CDRH decision-making on digital health technologies, uh, building digital health partnerships inside and outside uh, of FDA, uh, and coming up with new approaches to regulating uh, innovative medical technologies. The Center of Excellence will be key to implementing FDA's uh, Digital Health Innovation Action Plan, uh, whose goals include modernizing the agency's policies um, and issuing new guidance, uh, increasing the number and expertise of digital health personnel, and uh, to continue developing uh, the pre-certification pilot program uh, for digital health software manufacturers. During the pandemic, uh, FDA showed incredible flexibility by issuing numerous guidance documents relating to digital health and other medical devices. Uh, for instance, the agency created guidance with the aim of freeing up clinical resources for combating the pandemic uh, and increasing social distancing uh, by lowering uh, regulatory strictures on certain types of digital health devices. Using this justification, FDA has, among other things, uh, temporarily permitted manufacturers to modify existing uh, clear to approve patient monitoring devices to increase remote monitoring capabilities uh, and to be used by uh, patients at home uh, instead of in a clinical setting, uh, as well as increasing the availability of computerized behavioral therapy and digital health therapeutic devices for psychiatric disorders by allowing such devices to be marketed without obtaining pre-market clearance. Uh, in addition, FDA released a general policy announcement called Digital Health Policies and Public Health Solutions for COVID-19, uh, which encouraged uh, industry stakeholders to develop digital health products that may aid in the response to the pandemic uh, or that in can increase care options and interactions between patients and providers. The announcement also clarified that FDA does not re regulate a wide swath of digital health technologies and that it exercises enforcement discretion on many more. Uh, and this leads me to an important distinction that I wanna highlight as part of our discussion here. Uh, FDA does not actually regulate many of the technologies that are used as part of uh, telemedicine uh, or remote interactions between uh, healthcare providers and patients. Uh, to be regulated by FDA as a medical device, uh, a product must be intended uh, for use in the diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of a disease or condition, uh, or to affect the structure or function of the human body. Uh, and most telemedicine software does not meet those criteria. Uh, in the agency's words, uh, the FDA does not regulate software for video conferencing, even when intended for use in telemedicine because the software is not a medical device. So there you have it, straight from the agency. Telemedicine software in, in general for video conferencing is not a regulated medical device. Um, of course, there's a boundary there uh, that can be crossed. Uh, if telemedicine software were uh, to use the patient's laptop, tablet, or phone to relay any kind of diagnostic information to a physician, uh, such as through uh, an integrated camera into any of those platforms, or if it relied on uh, specialized sensors to gather and interpret diagnostic readings from a patient, 
uh, such as from a digital stethoscope or an EKG, uh, that would be medical device functionality, which would likely require marketing authorization. I'm so glad you mentioned this because this is more the kind of work that falls into my wheelhouse. And I imagine a lot of providers are struggling with this. Um, you know, for example, I would be asked to fill out on a certain app any information I have about my health. And sometimes when you do that, it'll spit back a potential diagnosis. So I always wonder whether that crosses the line or what, you know, they won't say this is X, you know, you have strep, but they might say based on the symptoms I've described within the app, a series of questions pop up that you may have strep, you may have, I don't know what, but I have yeah, to wonder so if that if that is what you're describing. Yeah, so that's okay. So that's uh, that. It's a good it's a good example to uh, sort of draw out this distinction. Um, so what you described um, is actually medical device functionality, um, and it's described in one of FDA's guidances on uh, on software functionalities. Um, that you know, it, it essentially lays out which types of software uh, and mobile applications are are going to be considered. Uh, regulated medical devices, um, those that are under enforcement discretion, which means uh, that the agency is choosing not to enforce uh, its regulations with respect to those uh, that type of software, and uh, and and then uh, software functionalities that are uh, definitely regulated as as medical devices. Um, so the 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 example you just brought up is actually uh, an example from the guidance. Um, where and the agency describes it as a checklist of symptoms um, that can be used to provide a, a potential, like a, a list of potential uh, conditions that you might be experiencing. So, and, and, and those are, and, and this type of functionality is, is actually under enforcement discretion. So um, there's some leeway there with manufacturers. Um, and as you said, as long as it's not giving a, a specific diagnosis of saying, you know, you have strep or, or even you have brain cancer or something like that. It's, uh, you know, it's going to stay within that enforcement discretion. But then, but in terms of like telemedicine, what we're really talking about is active communications with a physician. So any sort of like uh, uh, application that you can use on a mobile device to, uh, to uh, use text communication with a, with a physician uh, to talk about um, you know, any sort of potential condition or symptoms um, or a video conferencing platform where you can see the physician and they can talk to you or, or show you test results or something like that. Uh, that kind of software, uh, which is merely just communications, is not considered a medical device. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so just going back to the, the final point I, wa I wanted to make here is that even after years of innovation and development uh, in the area of digital health, um, there's still huge advancements uh, on the horizon. Um, and fortunately, uh, fortunately, it looks uh, as though FDA is lining itself up to be a leader uh, in digital health technology and policy. Uh, so we look forward to the agency's next steps as it develops its capabilities in this area. Yes, we do. There's so much going on at the FDA, and clearly the agency has oversight over so many different product types and aspects of our daily lives that I'm sure we could fill many episodes with a discussion of each of them. But unfortunately, we're running out of time. So before I let you go, 
I wanted to ask and get your take on what you think are some of the most pressing items on the FDA's legislative or rulemaking agenda. Well, I can speak to that first, but uh, I know Ben has some thoughts as well. Um, One of the, I guess, pressing from a legislative calendar perspective, Neely, are the periodic reauthorizations uh, by Congress um, for FDA's user fee programs, which are uh, in place for prescription drugs and biologics, medical devices, and now generics and biosimilars. These are essentially authorizations that allow the agency to collect um, application fees and other kinds of fees from the industry when they submit certain types of um, application or facility registrations, that sort of thing to the agency. And that has to be reauthorized by Congress every five years. And although the, you know, the reauthorization process itself is sort of, you know, not that exciting, uh, what ends up happening is those user fee bills become, you know, sort of vehicles for other types of policy um, le- uh, policies and different types of legislation pertaining to FDA to get attached to. Um, because they are must-pass legislation. And so for, for these upcoming renewal period, that needs to be done by next summer, so summer of 2022. Otherwise, all those user fee programs end, and nobody wants that. Um, so there are a couple things that, you know, obviously uh, we're watching the user fee packages themselves as they get negotiated with industry and how they go to Congress and all of that. But on top of that, it's, you know, what are the most, as you said, what are the, some of the most controversial or dire uh, needs that the agency has that could end up either being attached to one of those user fee bills or really even being attached to another piece of COVID legislation or the infrastructure bills or anything that Congress uh, is working on right now. And again, that does periodically happen where FDA reform bills get attached to bigger pieces of legislation. So in 2020, uh, with the CARES Act, the coronavirus, the first coronavirus um, relief bill, we got a very long-awaited and uh, much-needed piece of over-the-counter drug reform legislation. It just had been sitting in Congress for years. Everybody wanted it to move, but it, you know, never really had uh, the right way to get to get uh, to get through Congress and to the president's desk. And the CARES Act was it. So. Uh, again, we could see something like that happen, you know, in the in the next year, and again, by, by the time next summer, 2022, with the user fee bills. So one thing I'm watching is uh, similar to over-the-counter drug legislation, which had been, you know, very needed, and everyone sort of agreed <laughs> was good legislation for many years. Um, getting tacked on last year, a, a similar one is cosmetic reform legislation. Um, FDA's authority over cosmetics and personal care products is much less than any of the other product categories. There's, for example, there's no manufacturing facility registration that's mandatory for cosmetic uh, products, uh, whereas for drugs, devices, blood, vaccines, everything else, you do have mandatory registration. So this, for example, this reform legislation, which again has been sitting in Congress for many years and is bipartisan, would create that kind of mandatory registration. So I think cosmetic reform is very important. Uh, I think we, we've seen more and more, you know, high, high profile incidents of, you know, um, shampoos and other cosmetics. You know, there was even something last year with lead and some children's cosmetics. You know, there is more public pressure to, um, to get 
that regulatory regime a little bit tighter on the FDI side. So I, I, I that for me, that's one that I'm watching uh, pretty closely. How about you, Ben? Well, I mean, there's just so much going on in the device world. I mean, I, uh, I only talked about, you know, the, uh, the EUA stuff and then the, uh, during the pandemic and then the, uh, the digital health items, but there's a lot more that's going on at CDRH um, and uh, that also touches on the FDA in general. I mean, one of the, one of the major things that uh, we keep coming across is the, the regulation of laboratory developed tests uh, or LDTs. So there's, there's a, there's a fundamental issue in, in the regulatory world out there about how um, LDTs are being uh, handled in terms of government regulation. I won't go through the entire saga, but um, FDA originally claimed that it had jurisdiction over LDTs and then uh, and, and released uh, guidance uh, to, uh, to talk about how it was going to wrap uh, LDTs into the regulatory framework with uh, other in vitro diagnostic tests. Um, the industry balked, um, and so did so did Congress. And and then uh, FDA ended up indefinitely holding uh, that guidance, and it never published a, a final version. Um, and it's basically defunct now. But we just we look we look to it for, uh, <laughs> for as a touch point because it's really the only thing out there about LDTs. And 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 then uh, in August of last year, uh, under the previous administration, HHS released a policy announcement that basically said that FDA doesn't have the current authority to regulate LDTs, and if they want to take that kind of jurisdiction on and and propose any regulation, it has to be through notice and comment rulemaking, which is then not through guidance. So it's a it would be a pretty long and arduous process for the agency to do. Um, it probably wouldn't get very far because there's so much resistance out there. So the, this, uh, the, the resolution of this, uh, uh, of this uh, the regulation of LDTs will probably have to come at the hands of Congress. And there already is a bill. Um, it's called the uh, Verifying Accurate Leading Edge IVCT Development Act, um, or the VALID Act. Um, it's been uh, sitting on, uh, in Congress, uh, languishing, we could say. And everyone sort of expects it to be taken up at some point, and it would basically wrap, do what FDA was trying to do, wrap together uh, LDTs um, and IVDs into a single sort of regulatory framework. But it, the, the estimates are that the passage of this bill is a ways off, um, so it doesn't look like there's probably going to be any uh, near-term resolution of how LDTs are actually going to be uh, regulated. Um, and then adding on to that are a couple other issues. I mean, FDA is trying to uh, revamp its, basically its whole system relating to medical devices. I talked about those outmoded uh, regulatory frameworks that don't really work well for software. Um, FDA has a number of initiatives going to, uh, to revise um, and essentially overhaul its um, uh, the uh, pre-market notification or 510k clearance process to overhaul the quality system regulations and harmonize them with the ISO requirements, which is the, the international quality system requirements. Um, those, so those are major undertakings and you know they're probably not likely to get too far until the pandemic is over. 
I was going to throw one thing out, Neely, that is not legislative, but I think it bears watching. A couple years ago, uh, FDA put out uh, what they called a comprehensive framework for the regulation of regenerative medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't new regulations or anything like that. It wasn't new authority, but it was essentially a, a reassertion of, okay, we sort of dropped the ball over the last 10 years and weren't regulating stem cell clinics and this, you know, basically all these stem cell providers in the country that most of them are not in compliance with FDA requirements at all. You either need to have an investigational new drug application and be doing this in a in a, a controlled way if you're using a stem cell product that's unapproved or you need to have an approval right it's very similar to what we talked about at the beginning of this uh discussion in terms of unapproved and and adulterated and misbranded products so in the stem cell space fda had sort of taken a hands-off approach for many years and a few years ago had realized it had gotten a little out of control and and issued this comprehensive uh, framework, I believe in, I believe it was 2016. So, or maybe 17. As part of that, they said, we're giving everyone a period of, you know, a couple years to come into compliance. Please come talk to us, get your IND, the investigational new drug application. We'll streamline it. We'll let doctors, you know, sort of combine um, their different, you know, if you're doing the same procedure, but in different clinics, you can combine and do a, a IND together. You know, they were trying to be very flexible, but really are saying, you know, we can't just let patients be put at risk. There have been some reports of injuries, serious injuries in these clinics. There's been actually a lot of private lawsuits of people saying, you know, hey, clinic, you charged me $10,000 to inject stem cells into my eye for my blindness and I'm not, I'm still blind, you know, that kind of thing. So all of that has brought the agency's attention to this, you know, issue in a, in a really strong way. And um, that period of enforcement discretion where they said, come talk to us, we won't take action against you um, unless you're actually really harming people um, is coming to an end. So May 31st of this year is the end of that period. We'll have to see what that means in terms of a change in agency enforcement activity. Um, and over the past two years, even during that enforcement discretion, where you know FDA thought there was serious risk to patients or actual reports of injury, they were issuing warning letters and untitled letters. And they, they did take a couple of uh, uh, cases to court to get injunctions, again, where, where the uh, violations were pretty egregious. But again, query what's going to happen after May of this year, um, how they're going to get a handle on all of that activity, because there are, you know, hundreds of uh, clinics and physicians offering those products throughout the country. So I think that's a very hot topic that bears uh, some watching in the next few months. Sure. But you don't think it would be extended, the enforcement discussion? It will not be extended. They have already said it. We know that. Actually, we know that because it was originally November of 2020. And they extended it for six months because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then just in the last couple of weeks, the, um, the director of the Center for Biologics, which is who has oversight over these stem cell products, ha- has come out and said, there will be no further extensions. This is your last chance. So they, they've been pretty firm. They've, they probably shouldn't have given that much time to begin with. So I think they're done with, um, you know, letting people sort of ride out, ride out this period. Got it. Well, thank you both so, so much for being here today. This was so interesting for me, and I hope our listeners have learned as much as I did. 
That brings us to the end of our show. If you have any questions about this or any prior episode, or you'd like to propose questions for the next episode, please email us at healthlawdiagnosed.mints.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you all back here in a few weeks.